probably one of the biggest lies foisted on children by their well-meaning parents is to advise their child in a situation of uh, schoolyard verbal abuse to chant back to their tormentor, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. In the parent's mind, I, I suppose saying those things will somehow persuade the kid to ignore the taunt, refrain from physical retaliation, while remembering, well, well remaining calm and good-natured and kind of taking a more philosophical approach to their life. Uh, they're just words after all, right? They're not physical blows and they have no real effect. That's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> Probably half the time, little Johnny defiantly chanted those words on the schoolyard, I was on the verge of tears. Uh, in fact, a, a strong argument could be made that it's far easier for the wounds caused by sticks and stones to heal than the damage caused by words. The tongue is such a small organ of the human body, but its sinful impact is all out of proportion to its size, isn't it? And just like you, I've used my tongue to lie, to gossip, to flatter people like a little weasel, to arrogantly boast of my achievements, to spread false rumors, to curse and blaspheme God's holy name. I've used my tongue to tempt others to sin, I've used it to revile and dishonor my superiors. I've used my tongue to deceive and to speak filthy things. In fact, when I look at my life and the things that I've done that really make me squirm with shame, and and there's so much to choose from, at the very top of the list is how I've often used my tongue. There have been too many occasions in my life where I've deliberately and cruelly sharpened my words into razor blades. Times when I've used my tongue to inflict the greatest damage possible, that I might hurt others and make them feel worthless, like garbage, or run down their reputations behind their back. People made in God's image. And in some cases... In the worst cases, I can still see the damage my words have caused years later. Because apart from God's grace, there are some wounds inflicted by the tongue that never heal. According to James chapter 3, the Christian's control of their tongue, of their speech, taming the tongue, bridling the tongue, that action testifies to a person's transformed heart and genuine faith in Jesus Christ more so than any other act of Christian obedience. Did you know that? I mean, that's, that's an astonishing thing to, to hear. The Christian's bridled tongue testifies to a transformed heart and genuine faith in Jesus Christ more than any other act of obedience. And James isn't speaking of some New Year's resolution to be more encouraging and to refrain from improper speech. Anybody can do that. No, he's speaking of supernatural transformation. As he writes in chapter 1, verse 18, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And a tamed tongue is evidence that we have indeed been born again, born through the word of truth. 
But, of course, the opposite is true as well. Friend, do you consider yourself to be a religious person? I know that's not a very popular concept these days. One of the things that makes Bible-believing Christians really stand out in Canadian culture is that we're a religious people as opposed to a spiritual people. Uh, There's a distinction in the Canadian mind between those two things. Uh, Being a spiritual person, that's fine. It's encouraged even, though the the concept is very cloudy. It's very subjective. I, I, I mean, what actually constitutes a good spirituality? Uh... From my own conversations, it seems the major criterion is based on how it makes the person feel. If the person feels good and closer to the universe or some higher power, or if they feel that they're learning more about themselves, if they feel authentic, then they're practicing a good spirituality. Uh, It's not about which spiritual path you choose. It's about choosing a spiritual path, going deeper, and respecting people on various paths. And our culture says, yeah, that sounds nice. That's, that's the kind of spiritual person I aspire to be. On the other hand, people who practice an honest-to-goodness religion, people like Christians, we're looked at askance because we're coming from the perspective of absolute certainty. We worship a personal God who, with clearly defined principles and precepts that we did not discover for ourselves but which we believe God has revealed to us in his word. We believe what we believe and how we live is part of an authoritative system. There are teachings and there are practices revealed in the Bible to fallen humanity. We all must believe and practice as well as things which we must never believe or practice. And that sets us apart from the culture at large. And not in a good way either, at least to the culture's thinking. So friend, when I ask, do you consider yourself to be a religious person? I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. And neither does James. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 26 of his letter. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. How can James say that? How can he make a pronouncement about the truth, the, re- uh, uh, the reality of a person's faith in Jesus Christ based on something like their speech? He's only following, of course, what Jesus himself taught. Turn quickly to Matthew chapter 12. It's on page 978 of your church Bibles. Matthew 12, um, in verse 24, Jesus just cast out a demon. And the religious leaders of the day have said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And then Jesus responds in Matthew 12, 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in them, and evil people bring evil things 
out of the evil stored up in them. But I tell you that people will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted or justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Brother, sister, Jesus has redeemed and is transforming our entire person. He didn't leave pockets of our personality or inner being untouched by his sanctifying grace. Our speech is part of who we are. Our words come up out of our heart. Our tongue, it too, comes under the sway of the renewing power of God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us. Christian, the Christian speech is transformed. It's brought in line with God's will. Just like our sex life. Just like our thought life. How we think of and use our money. It comes under God's will. Our marriage. How we raise our children. Our singleness. Our priorities in life. Our text today, beloved, is a serious warning, and I'm going to preach it that way. The tone of the text is going to be the tone of my sermon. As he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, James tells us the tongue may be a small organ, but its sinful impact is all out of proportion to its size. The tongue is a flame of fire. It's a whole world of wickedness right there behind our teeth. A whole world of wickedness potentially corrupting our entire body. And it can set our whole life on fire. The power of Satan himself gives our tongues great destructive potential. Which means, Christian, if you're looking for a barometer of your spiritual health, your tongue should be the first place you start. Don't tell yourself how religious you are because of the amount of money you gave to the church this month or how many hours you spend in prayer and Bible reading or how much time you volunteer at the pregnancy care center. James 1.26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Now, instead of launching immediately into the main topic of the paragraph, which is the destructive potential of human speech, James begins this section by discouraging people from becoming teachers in the church. And he begins this way because the ministry of a teacher in a local church involves speech. The ministry itself is directly related to the tongue, the hardest of all the parts of the body to control. It's a whole world of wickedness with the destructive potential to corrupt the entire body. And as such, teachers then are exposing themselves to greater danger of judgment. Verse 1, James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And I remember as a child thinking this verse applied to my elementary school teachers. And if they were mean to me, They would be judged harshly by God on the last day. And and that was a concept I could really get behind as a a seven-year-old. Mrs. Hiltz will be judged more strictly. (laughs) But James isn't referring to school teachers. These are teachers in the church. Now, unlike a New Testament prophet 
who transmitted to God's people revelations received directly from the Lord. A teacher in James' day had the task of expounding the truth of the gospel on the basis of the growing Christian tradition and the Old and New Testament scripture. And it appears that people in the church were seeking the status of a teacher without the proper qualifications, be they intellectual or moral. Uh, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Being a teacher in the church is not a role to be entered into lightly. The potential for disaster, both for the teacher himself and for his hearers, is very great. And because teachers bear so much responsibility for the spiritual welfare of those to whom they minister, Pastor Alex, he's in the Sunday school room with the, with the uh, projector there, but you can hear me, brother. <laughs> teachers will be scrutinized by the Lord more carefully than others. Jesus says in Luke twelve forty eight, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And teachers in God's church have been entrusted with much. We've been entrusted with the very words of God. The very words of God. Verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. That means there's a whole variety of sins to be on guard against in the Christian life. We all stumble in many ways. You may be more prone to that sin or this sin. I may be prone to a particular kind of sin. But there's one way in which we all sin. With the tongue, with our speech. Verse 2. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Able to keep their whole body in check. And of the texts of scripture that ties in closely with what James teaches here, it's probably found in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. I want us to turn there, please. Romans chapter 6 is on page 1131 of our church Bibles. So let me just, uh, I don't know if I brought this up before yet, but actually the epistle of James, this is considered to be New Testament wisdom literature, right? And wisdom literature always speaks in terms of black and white. There's like, there's this and there's this. There's the way of wisdom, there's the way of folly. There's never any gray. And so you're, you, see, you see great dichotomy in the book of James, because it's following a certain uh, stipulations of the genre itself. So just bear that in mind as we go through this text. Uh, But Romans 6, 8, what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage is that if we have indeed been united with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, then holy behavior, holy obedience inevitably follows. Paul's encouraging Christians to act like what we are. Chapter 6, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ has, was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument or a weapon even of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. 
For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. It's so, so humbling, but it's easy to make a list of the thousand different ways that we actually offer up parts of our body to sin as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness. I mean, just think of the ways that you've rebelled against God this week, Christian, with your eyes, your hands, your feet, your mind. James tells us in verse 2, those who are never at fault, those who never stumble in what they say are perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. What he means by that is the mouth is so difficult to control. It's, it's so given to biting, slanderous words. It's so given to uttering what's false. It's so prone to flap open when it should be bolted shut. So prone to cursing others made in God's image that the person who can keep their mouth in check surely has the ability to keep in check other, less unruly parts of the body. Right? Body parts like eyes, hands, feet, sexual organs, you name it. Those members of the body are a piece of cake compared to the world of wickedness that is the human tongue. I think this verse needs to act like a bucket of ice-cold water being thrown into our face because I don't place my tongue in this sort of extreme category. Do you? I mean, James is really pouring it on here. He's warning us about the power of the tongue. He's warning us about the control such a small organ can wield over the entire body. And he's setting us up for his second point. So just think of this as a sort of like a snowball rolling down the hill, sort of packing on more snow. Point number two in your bulletins, the incredible power of the tongue. Though small, it can control and inflame the rest of a human being, verses 3 to 6. Now, at, perhaps at this point, you're, you're thinking, Pastor John, what James is saying here, I mean, this is, this is really over the top, isn't it? That the tongue can inflame and control the entire person? I don't believe it. I don't think my tongue actually has such an enormous impact on my spiritual condition. I got... Other sins I'm sort of more worried about than my tongue. I don't believe such a small part of my body wields such an influence all out of proportion to its size. My skeptical friend, James, has anticipated your objection, which is why he now launches into a whole series of illustrations. He's reinforcing his belief that a comparatively, a comparatively small part of the body, like the tongue, indeed has an influence all out of proportion to its size. The tongue is like a small bit that controls a large horse. It's like a small rudder that steers a large ship. It's like a tiny spark that causes a forest fire. Verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Now, for all us city slickers, a bit is a piece of metal that's inserted into the horse's mouth and then it's attached to the bridle, right? And then the reins. And when the rider tugs on the reins, it causes massive discomfort unless the animal moves away from the pressure caused by the bit. So with just a little piece of metal, the rider can control a 1,000 pound animal. 
And that's precisely what James is contrasting, a small instrument and a large object. Verse 4, or take ships as an example. Although they, are, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants it to go. Again, a small instrument controlling a large object. Verse 5, likewise the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And James doesn't mean the tongue is used in the sin of prideful, arrogant, boasting before God, though that's certainly true. The tongue does do that. That's not what James is talking about. Boasting in verse 5 doesn't have a negative connotation. The tongue does have considerable importance. It can legitimately boast about its power. Just as a bit controls the direction of a horse and a rudder the direction of a ship, so the tongue can determine the destiny of an individual. Beloved, when a believer exercises careful control over their tongue, it can be presumed all the other areas in their life are in submission to God. In those wisdom categories, that's how James is speaking of this. As verse 2 says, those who are never at fault in what they say are perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. But when that tongue is not restrained, because it possesses a power all out of proportion to its size, like a little spark, which is able to set an entire forest ablaze, it has the potential to bring disaster, spiritual disaster. So do you see, James is bringing in our eternal destinies into this picture. He's linking our eternal welfare with our tongues, with our speech. That's the power this slender portion of flesh wields over our entire body. Think of it this way. If you have a smartphone, you possess technology that puts you into instantaneous contact with almost infinite quantities of information, including every piece of filth and depravity the human imagination has ever conceived. In my hand right now is the acme of portable information retrieval and a hellhole of every imaginable perversion. The tongue is something like that. Here we are, human beings created in the image of God, yet in our bodies is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Look at verse 6. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. We're all familiar with the character of Igor, right? Maybe how he's portrayed in the Mel Brooks movie Young Frankenstein. Uh, Igor is the laboratory assistant who's sent by Dr. Frankenstein to secure the brain for his ghastly creation. Dr. Frankenstein has in mind the brain of a Nobel Prize winning laureate and saint, but Igor accidentally smashes the brain and uh, substitute it, substitutes it with the brain of a homicidal maniac, which causes the creature to run amok. If only the creature had a good brain, right? Uh, but the deck was stacked against Frankenstein's monster from the get-go. What hope did he ever have of being good? Well, what about us? Why in the world would God put a world of evil in our mouths 
that's empowered by the flames of hell. I mean, that's just asking for trouble. Ah, uh, but remember, God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, perfect, innocent, without sin. The human tongue used to be a thing of holy beauty, an instrument of righteousness, wholly yielded to God, not a serpent filled with poison and malice and sin. It became an instrument of unrighteousness. It became a world of evil after the fall of Adam and Eve. And now, this side of the fall, we live our lives with this warring principle at work in our body as new covenant believers. We want to go back to the way things were before this age of the Spirit. We want to live our life in our flesh when we were slaves of sin, mastered by sin, when we were pleased to offer up the parts of our body as tools of unrighteousness, as weapons of unrighteousness. Inside your mouth, Christian, is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And that sort of language is unique. In Holy Scripture, no other part of the body is referred to in those terms. It's unique. So what I say is perhaps there needs to be a shift in our thinking, particularly on my part, as I'm a teacher. Perhaps there needs to be a new awareness for all of us, New City. No other part of our body wreaks so much havoc on our lives as our tongue. Gossiping, backbiting, lying, flattering, angry words, arrogant boasting, spreading false rumors, talking about your pastor's shortcomings when you have only one-third of the facts, cursing, blasphemy, teaching false doctrine, tempting others to sin, reviling or dishonoring those whom God has placed over us or beneath us, deception, filthy talk, taking God's name in vain. There are so many varieties of sin associated with an untamed tongue. It's a whole world of wickedness, and James says it has the potential to set our whole life on fire. It has the potential in your city to set our church on fire. The tongue wreaks havoc with human lives and is itself set on fire by hell, which means the power of Satan himself gives to the tongue its greatest destructive potential. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 11, what goes into your mouth does not defile you, but what comes out of your mouth, that is what defiles you. Then verse 18, the things that come out of your mouth come from your heart, and these defile you, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. So do you see? That's how James can relate our speech to our eternal welfare. That's how he does it. He's not saying, get your tongues in order, Christian, that you might be saved, or that you might be saved. He's telling us that our tongues act as sort of spiritual echocardiograms. 
Our speech is a spiritual sonogram, which shows our heart's true spiritual condition. Husbands, how do you speak to and about your wife? Wives, how do you speak to and about your husband? Parents, how do you speak to and about your children? Children, how do you speak to and about your parents? Christian, how do you speak to and about your neighbors? How do you speak to and about your co-workers? How do you speak about the political leaders God has placed over us? How do you speak to and about the members of this church, even to your spouse on the way home from church or when you're lying in bed? Christian, is your mouth an old west town with no sheriff? That must not be. If it is, there must be genuine repentance. That sort of sinful behavior must stop. It must. What a person truly is, is reflected in their speech. So act like what you are, Christian. Show by your speech that the gospel is true. It's true. Make certain that you and others around you are able to see your Christian consistency as evidenced by your bridled tongue. Our third point this morning is very short and utterly obvious. The tongue is difficult to bring under control, verses 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's not uh, politically correct these days, I suppose, but we could. We can go to a circus and see African lions and Bengal tigers jumping through hoops at the crack of a whip. Uh, We can see gigantic elephants standing on their hind legs and black bears riding unicycles. We can go to marine land and watch killer whales flap their tails and splash people on command and dolphins perform backflips in unison. Verse 8. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is like a wild serpent just ready to strike and no one can tame it on their own. But thank God... He can help us control what we cannot manage in our own strength. Don't let verse 8 lead you to abandon all efforts to bring your speech under control, Christian. That's not what James is saying at all. Remember what he's already written in chapter 1, verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So he's expecting a tight rein. He's expecting it. We may never reach the point in this life where our speech is perfectly controlled, but we can surely advance a long way in our speech to glorify God. We will not be mastered by sin. We will not be enslaved by sin. There will be, God's grace assisting us, a a repentant, obedient consistency in our speech. The tenor of our Christian life will be that of a person whose tongue is bridled, and brought under control, which moves us into the final point of James' text. And, and heads up, this is a real downer. And then I'm going to go to something that Jesus said to conclude things. But it's more warning, more sin. Point number four, the tongue's wild inconsistency. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Look quickly with me uh, at James chapter 1. 
verses 6 through 8. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded, or as we saw, double-souled and unstable in all they do. Such a person is unstable in all they do. They are double-souled. Their inconsistency betrays a basic disloyalty toward God. There is a basic division in their soul, which leads them to thinking, speaking, and acting in ways that contradict their claim to belong to God. They lack Christian consistency. They claim to have faith in God while while failing to exhibit the works that true faith always produces. And that double-mindedness transposes itself into double-tongueness. Chapter 3, verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. It's really hard to imagine a stronger contrast to illustrate the duality of the tongue. It's inconsistent doubleness than it being used both to praise God and curse human beings who've been made in God's image. If you'll pardon the imagery, it's like having sex with your wife and then leaving the bedroom and having sex with a prostitute. Praising God is the highest form of speech. It's the most exalted use of the human tongue. But to curse a fellow human being, whether they're Christian or not, is to curse the reflection of the divine. All from the same mouth, and both supposedly coming from the same transformed heart. Nowhere does a tongue reveal its evil power more than in its doubledness. From the same tongue, out of the same mouth, comes blessings and cursings. And James says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. No, we should be manifesting the wholeness and the purity of our heart in the consistent purity of our speech. We should be manifesting the wholeness and the purity of our heart in the consistent purity of our speech. Anything less, anything less is morally outrageous. Verse 11. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. I think that's another sort of bucket of ice water in the face sort of rebuke. Springs don't pour out fresh water one day and salt water the next. Fig trees bear figs, not olives. Neither does a grapevine bear figs. In the same way, it is inconceivable to think of your mouth, my mouth, Christian, pouring forth praise to God one minute and then hurling curses against God's image bearers the next. Why is that inconceivable? Because good things don't produce bad things. Good things don't produce bad things. And now we have a good heart. We have a renewed heart with God's law written upon its flesh, 
God's spirit indwells us. Consistently, pure speech is the inevitable outfall of such gospel reality. The true believer is known by their speech. We are revealed by our mouth. I'd like to close the sermon with something Jesus taught during his public ministry and that his half-brother James echoes here in chapter 3. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Turn there, it's on page 1009. Mark 7, 14. And Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside you can defile you by going into you. Rather, it is what comes out of you that defiles you. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters you from the outside can defile you? For it doesn't go into your heart, but into your stomach, and then out of your body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So kosher food laws were no more. He went on, what comes out of you is what defiles you. For from within... Out of your hearts come evil thoughts. Now just stop right there. Friend, have you ever in your life had an evil thought? You know that you have. Uh, Well, God demands perfection. Even our thought life must be perfect. Or we've violated God's holy standard. God never has bad thoughts. That's his standard. And we've all fallen short, all of us, of that standard. So you're not alone in your sin, but you are in sin. You've had evil thoughts. And Jesus says the reason why we have evil thoughts is because our hearts are evil. Verse 21, from, for from within, out of our hearts comes evil thoughts. Out of our hearts comes sexual immorality. Let me lay my cards on the table. Uh, Sexually speaking, I'm not as pure as the driven snow. Out of my heart comes sexual immorality. That means in Jesus' eyes, I'm defiled. I'm dirty. My heart is defiled, so I do things and I think things that are sexually immoral. Jesus goes on to say, out of our defiled hearts comes theft. Have you ever taken something from someone or a store or the government that doesn't belong to you? Have you ever cheated on your taxes? Are you preparing to cheat on your taxes right now? Do you accept cash payments and then not declare your income to the government? You're a thief. But you're not a thief because you steal. You're a thief already. Your heart is defiled, therefore you steal. Out of our hearts come murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile you. Man, it's like Jesus is writing my biography in these verses. That's me. He's showing me that my sin is who I am on a very basic level. Jesus says all our hearts are defiled, and so they produce defiled works. 
which means we are defiled. And Jesus needs to purify us. I I realize in our text that James isn't referencing any of this explicitly, but this is being assumed by James, this text here. I think his text in chapter 3 is an echo of Jesus' teaching here. James and his Christian readers share a common pre-understanding. So I ask, friend, do you see yourself as being defiled? Not just you slip up and you do things from time to time that you're ashamed of, especially when you're provoked. I'm asking, do you see yourself, the you at the very core of your being, as hopelessly defiled, dirty, sinful, unclean. What Jesus says in these verses is hard medicine. No one, no one appreciates being told their heart is a depraved, defiled, bad part of the body. But if that's true, if that's God's diagnosis of our spiritual condition, then we want to know about it. In medicine, if you want to find a true, lasting cure for a disease, then what's needed is more than just a superficial grasp of the disease itself, a superficial diagnosis leads to a false remedy, not a cure. If I have cancer, I want the disease diagnosed for what it truly is, and I want my doctor to know all about cancer. I want my doctor to be an expert in the disease, and I want my doctor to tell me what I don't know about the disease, what the stakes are, what my chances are, the treatment I need, everything, which means I want to be treated by an oncologist, not a dentist. I want the person treating me to understand the seriousness of the disease and its symptoms. A person who through misdiagnosis would never, ever make the mistake of prescribing extra strength Tylenol to cover the pain that I'm experiencing instead of an intensive regimen of chemotherapy. I need radiation, I need blood transfusions, I need surgery, not cod liver oil. Here's God's diagnosis. The human heart, every human heart, is one giant, malignant, metastasizing tumor. And apart from God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it always results in eternal divine wrath. Hell. The only cure is what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. Everything else, everything else is a placebo. It's Tylenol. It's a Band-Aid. As John Piper notes, knowing the true condition of your heart will cause you to understand the mighty gospel and love it and cherish it and feast on it and share it like never before. And this is crucial because this is the way the gospel saves believers if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't cherish it and look at to it and feed on it day after day, it won't save you. Knowing all about your sinful heart and sin and wrath will help you do that. And my prayer, New City, is that we would all escape a superficial diagnosis of our sin and God's wrath against our sin and so come back again and again and again to the necessity and the beauty and the freeness of the gospel of justification through faith alone. By God's grace, once we see our desperate condition, 
then by that same grace, we turn our gaze from our sinful selves and we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. It's only in him that we find hope. All those bad thoughts that churn in our bad hearts, which then rise to our bad tongues and which we then vent in a display of autonomous defiance to our creator God, that can all be forgiven, fully forgiven. But Jesus is the gateway. That cleansing forgiveness that wipes away the defilement of our sin isn't something we could ever, ever earn. It's a gift freely given to us by God. We first must repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ. Friend, Jesus is willing to forgive you and to cleanse you. It's impossible for your defilement to exceed God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. So cast yourself upon Jesus and his cross and you will be cleansed today. And to all my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to leave us with an appeal to Christian action. God's grace assisting us, let's live like what we are. As a blood-bought people who have been and are being sanctified, transformed by the gospel. Let's live in such a way that our speech shows us to be members of a new eschatological covenant, a better covenant. May our speech showcase to the world that we are forgiven sinners filled with God's spirit. And so we, in fact, do speak with a bridled tongue. God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And as we look at our life, as we look at our speech, and we see things coming out of our mouth that ought not to be coming out, let's confess it for the sin that it is and turn from it. Brothers and sisters, let's make the gospel look more beautiful by our speech. Because our bridled tongue evidences that we're truly Christians, that our religion isn't worthless, and that we're walking in obedience. Amen. Let's pray.